optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where each episode, it is my job to deconstruct a world-class performer, to tease out the habits, routines, tips, favorite books, etc., that you can use, whether that is someone like Jamie Foxx, or a chess prodigy, or a special operations commander, and everybody in between. This episode, we have Alex Honnold. I've wanted to interview Alex for a very, very long time. You can find him on Facebook, dot com forward slash Alex Honnold, H-O-N-N-O-L-D. He is a professional adventure rock climber whose free solo, that means no ropes, no partner ascents of America's biggest cliffs have made him one of the most recognized and followed climbers in the world. If you want to sweat profusely from your palms, you can watch videos of Alex and I'll put them in the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Honnold is distinguished for his uncanny ability to control fear while scaling cliffs of dizzying heights without a rope to protect him. And we really dig into that. 
how he looks at risk, fear, addresses both in training and with these first ascent attempts and so on. His most celebrated achievements include the first and only free solos of the Moonlight Buttress. That's a 512D, which means super fucking hard. Uh, that's 1,200 feet in Zion National Park in Utah. And the Northwest Face, that's a 512A of Half Dome, 2,200 feet. And that is in Yosemite in California, right in my backyard. Beautiful spot. In 2012, he achieved Yosemite's first triple solo climbing. That means in succession, the National Park's three largest faces, Mount Watkins, Half Dome, and El Capitan alone, and all in under 24 hours. He is the founder of the Honold Foundation, an environmental nonprofit. And to this day... And perhaps one of the most fascinating aspects of Alex is he maintains a very, very minimalist dirtbag climber existence. And that's not meant as a slight. That is meant as a compliment. Living out of his van, and I think he's done that for the last 10 years or so, despite the fact that he has big sponsors and traveling the world in search of the next great vertical adventure. So we dig into all sorts of things. And without further ado, I will let you hear the wide-ranging conversation that I had with Alex Honnold. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I have wanted to interview you ever since I first saw footage of you climbing because I trained long ago at Mission Cliffs here in San Francisco and did top roping, never have climbed outside except for Castle Rock. I don't know if you know. Yeah, by Santa Cruz. Exactly. That's where I started as a kid, kind of. Really? Yeah, that's one of my local areas. So you grew up... In Sacramento, or am yeah. I making that up? Yeah, I grew up in Sacramento. And what was your upbringing like? I mean, if you had to describe your childhood, how would you take a stab at it? Uh, just just normal suburban life. You know, Sacramento, good times. Good times. Sacktown. Yeah, I haven't spent yeah. a lot of time there. I mean, Mark Bell, who's a buddy, has a gym called Super Training Gym up there. He's, I think, one of the top 10 in his weight mm-hmm. class of all time. That is the extent of my exposure to Sacramento is just hanging out with him and feeling really weak, hmm. which probably would have been the experience if I'd gone climbing with you even in the early days. What did your parents do? Uh, my parents are both teachers or professors. What did they teach? Um, they taught language. Like uh, English is a second language and French. Were, were your parents born in the U.S. or were they elsewhere? Um, yeah, they were both born in the U.S., though mom uh was born to polish immigrants so i mean she's born in the u.s and she's american and her parents were actually born here too but they were like 100 percent polish like fresh off the boat style uh how did you start climbing i know it's probably a story that you've told a million times but how did that begin um my parents just read about a gym opening in sacramento and they thought i'd like it and so they took me to a climbing gym i mean just like you were saying in mission cliffs like there was a comparable gym in in uh sacramento and so i went in there when i was maybe 11 and then just kept going all the time what was what was the first day like? Can you describe? I, like I honestly have no recollection. I was like an eleven year old, yeah. and then I probably went to the gym, you know, three to five times a week from eleven to eighteen. So it's like it all kind of blurs into like one epic gym session. <laughs> Did you know in the early days of going to that gym that you had a predisposition to it? Um, no, not particularly. I mean, I loved climbing and I, I loved going in there and, and just playing all the time and climbing as much as I could. But I was never like gifted in the way that a lot of people are gifted rock climbers. And, you know, I wasn't, like, winning the competitions or anything. I did some comps on and off throughout my teenage years. And uh, I never won, you know. <laughs> I was never I was never super strong. Was, but I just, like, loved climbing all the time. Why do you think you didn't win? I mean, what 
Well, because I wasn't very strong, you know. <laughs> strong, no, but strong meaning in what capacity? Like I, the, I like well, to okay, dig like, into the details with this. So, stuff. for example, I mean, this is kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but no, so that's, like that's what Chris, this is about. Yeah, yeah, okay, here we go. So, Chris Sharma is like basically the, mm-hmm. been the best climber in the world for the last twenty years, and he was like my hero when I was a kid, or you know, he was one of the people I watched videos of, and I was like, that guy's the man. So he's from Santa Cruz. He started climbing when he was fourteen, and when he was fifteen, he put up a route called Necessary Evil, and. It, outside of las vegas and it was like the first 14 c in the country so it's it was the hardest route in america and he did it after one year of climbing as a 15 year old i mean that's like a prodigy i mean he was like freakishly strong from the get-go he could just always pull on really small edges he had freakishly strong fingers he could do one-arm pull-ups off like anything and you're like that guy's gifted um i was not that guy <laughs> you know actually this season i tried to do that route necessary evil um this winter and i uh, totally failed on it <laughs> i was like i still couldn't do it and i was like god damn i've been climbing for 20 years and i like tried pretty hard you know and i still just can't climb as well as he did after one year well i still can't climb as hard like i'm just not as strong as he was after one year i mean there are plenty of things that i'm probably better at than he is you know it's all relative technique and everything what would but, what would some of those things be that you're better at well, I've not spent, necessarily. I mean, not to necessarily compare you to him, but well, just so he's, that you're very he's, good at. He's never done any alpine climbing. He's never really done any big walling. He's probably not super efficient logistically, and um, you know, but he's very, very strong. And I'm just not strong like that. But you know, but I do other types of climbing. For those people who are not familiar with the world of climbing, could you describe some of the different types to so the alpine big wall? Yeah, so climbing is is pretty complicated because it ranges from say indoor bouldering, which is probably the simplest thing you can possibly do, um, to alpine climbing you know like climbing in the himalaya or climbing huge walls around the world and so that involves like ice and mixed climbing where you're using ice tools and crampons and that kind of gear and then you know there's big wall climbing which is basically climbing huge vertical rock walls where you're on the wall for multiple days um then there's i mean there's just a ton of categories and the uh, bouldering so for people who don't know what that is that's typically it's no ropes yeah it's unroped um it's i mean an easy way to think of it is practice climbing right you know basically practicing movement so you're climbing maybe three or four meters maybe five max you know but you're climbing small small heights that you're comfortable falling off and landing on a pad and you're basically just doing really hard physical moves it's actually an easy way to compare it as um to the running world between sprinting and and ultra running or something Mm -hmm. Like the spectrum of climbing ranges from short and super intense to super, super long, but obviously low intensity. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always been more of the low intensity, long distance type of guy, you know, where some people are just freakishly strong. And you were attracted to that because of the, the relative lack of strength or was there something else that appealed to you about that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it might just be one of those things that I sort of naturally gravitated towards the thing that suits me. But I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is just that I've always loved climbing. I like doing a lot of rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been attracted to high volume. I mean, I like to like take the roots in my guidebook, you know, be like, oh, I climbed this and I climbed that. And so I like to climb a lot of roots. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, yeah, I mean, I just, I like climbing a lot. <laughs> I think that's certainly clear. I, uh, I wonder what, what do you think you were going to be or what did you fantasize about becoming when you grew up when you were a kid? I mean, as a kid, I th- thought I was going to become an engineer or something. You know, I just thought I would have some normal job. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, when I was growing up, there really wasn't a professional climbing scene. Like you couldn't really be a professional climber because the whole climbing industry hadn't really taken off and there weren't so many gyms and it, it was like a different world. So I never thought that I was going to be a climber. Uh, I just thought that I'd have some random job. You... uh now I'm going off the internet here, so that's a, that's a risky business, yeah. but, uh, you ended up at one point at, was it UC Berkeley? Yeah. Planning to be an engineer. Yeah. What type of engineering? Um, I'd applied for civil engineering. I was going to, yeah. Why civil? 
uh, I mean, basically one of my uncles was a civil engineer. I was just like, that's cool. And I love, I liked building things and the idea of like building bridges or like big, big projects like that. I mean, it's appealing, you know, the idea of like constructing something cool. Do you, but, did you collect anything as a kid or do you? Yeah, I was way into Legos. Legos. Which, okay. So know, no, this is like the, the theme, right? So the kind of large structures, large walls, uh, how long did you collect the Legos for? I mean, do you have any idea? I'm not looking for exact uh, timelines here, but. Well, I don't know when I first started getting Legos, but probably when I was really small. And then up until being a teenager, basically, I had a ton of Legos. Did you have any, any, like, uh, uh, I'm not, coup de gras is not the right expression here. I'm looking for your landmark piece. Is there anything that you remembered? I, like, I had friends who built, like, the Death Star out of Legos, and that was, like, the, the, the pinnacle thing. of their Lego career. No, I mean, I think I had a few just, epic forts and like really cool pirate ships and things and um no but i never constructed anything that was like the the culmination of my lego lego career i don't know <laughs> but, but I, the thing is I, I think i took almost as much pleasure in destroying the things afterward as you know because you create like this elaborate city and then my sister and i would take like a golf ball or something and just like destroy it <laughs> and be like oh starting over it's more the process of building it that was so fun and do you have uh one sibling or do you have more yeah i have one? an older sister That's older it. sister how how much older? Two years older. Do you talk to her much? Yeah, we're yeah we're good friends. Very close. Yeah, fair amount. Yeah. What is what does she do professionally? Um, I don't know. It's complicated. It's complicated. She basically just like makes the world a better place. Okay. Um, she's she uh she's lived in Portland since she went to college there, and she's mm-hmm. like vegan, has never owned a car. She's like ultra earth firsty, and um she basically does outdoor participation stuff with kids, and uh it's kind of like. I mean, she's basically getting like at risk. It's like a work program for at risk youth or sort of, I don't know. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. But over the years, she's, she's also been like a middle school teacher and she's done like, you know, bike programs with kids and all kinds of, you know, wholesome things that make, make the community better. If you had to pick a fixed location, well, I mean, we're definitely going to get to the van and everything surrounding uh, that story, but if you had to pick a place to park up in the U.S. for say five years, I, yeah, let's let's make it a five-year timeline. Where would where would you pick at this point? I don't know. That's a tough. That's tough. But um, I mean, the obvious choices as a climber would be somewhere like Boulder, Colorado, or say Salt Lake, or Flagstaff, or any of the cities that are sort of known, or Las Vegas, actually places that are known as climbing hubs where you have great outdoor climbing all around them. And and I could see living in any of those places if I had to, um, or like say you know I got married to somebody to live there or something crazy. And I'm like, well, I could see I could see being happy in any of those cities. Um, though honestly, I love Portland too. Though there's no real climbing there, and it's not a great place to to live as a climber, and the climate's terrible with too much rain. But as far as progressive cities that go, it's like probably my favorite city in the country. They have voodoo donuts too. I'm not sure if you're a big donut yeah, I'm not, guy. I'm not. No, I've eaten there, and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't think it was that great though. Not the best. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I, don't know, I was a little underwhelmed. Yeah, could have been my blood alcohol content at the time. But uh, (laughs) do you think, uh, so I want to talk about uh, climbing and the ability to climb full time, because you you touched Mm -hmm. on, I think, a really important point, which is when you began climbing, the prospect of becoming a professional climber just didn't really exist, right, as a notion. Yeah, Um, I mean, there were a handful of professional climbers when I started, but it was like such a small, there wasn't like a climbing industry. It was really small. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you have a reputation for, or you're well known for living as, and this is a term I hadn't heard until I watched a documentary that Yvonne Chouinard was in. 
uh, dirtbag. So mm. like living as a dirtbag climber. Can you describe that? What, the, what does that mean, first of all? And what is your version of that? Um, well, so, I mean, I guess that just means somebody who, it, like a lifestyle climber, like somebody who just lives to climb. So it's like the full time on the road, you know, doing whatever it takes to be a climber, I guess. I mean, being a dirtbag isn't, isn't a negative thing in the climbing community. Right. It's just like, oh, that guy's committed to the, the mm-hmm. cause. And I'm sure there's the same kind of term for like the surf community or whatever else, mm-hmm. you know, people who just like live to go mountain biking or surfing or whatever, you know, taking mm-hmm. odd jobs and just like doing their thing just to, to be able to do their sport as much as they can. And it seems, I remember years ago, I chatted with um, Steph Davis, uh, when I was running on the four hour body, it seems like a very semi monastic lifestyle. I mean, you're, you're really dedicated. It makes me think of like the marathon monks in Japan, uh, but instead of you know running every day, you're climbing sort of this itinerant lifestyle. Uh, now you live? Do you currently? Do you still live in a van? Uh, yeah, I mostly live in my car. But then I'm overseas a lot more now. And then when I'm traveling for work stuff, I get put up in hotels or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, I'm still focused in the van. What kind of van? Well, I just sold my old van. So I lived in a van for nine years, and then I just sold it to one of my cousins because I was just kind of over it. I felt like I sort of outgrew it. Um, and so now I have a. Uh, a Dodge ProMaster, mm-hmm. which I can stand in, which is a big, big upgrade. How tall are you? Life. I'm like 5'11". What? But, so how have you how have you kitted out this van to be suited to your needs? Well, so I actually just left it with a friend of mine who built it out while I was on an expedition in Patagonia this winter. And so he just made it nice. I mean, you know, a super nice bed and like a kitchen and good cabinetry and, um, you know, a refrigerator. And um, yeah, I mean, it's basically a really small apartment. It's super nice. And... uh the coming back to the industry so uh are there people who criticize the industry of climbing sponsor influx and the reason i bring that up is not because i'm critical it's because i've seen for instance in the ufc and mma when in the very early days it was it was really unfeasible for people to be professional mma athletes mm-hmm. and as soon as sponsors came in and you had that sustainability the level of athleticism and training and competency just went completely through the roof. Mm-hmm. Is it, is there something similar in climbing? I mean, do you feel, how do you feel about the so-called climbing industry? I mean, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, I mean, there is obviously criticism. I mean, you can find stuff online from, you can always find traditionalists and stuff who are like, this isn't the way it was when I grew up. So I don't think it should be this way. Or like, Oh, I feel like it's corrupting the art of climbing or, whatever else, you know, the, the having corporate money coming into the climbing world is, is tainting the, the artistic experience. I mean, whatever. I mean, you know, you can find criticism for it. Um, I think it's great. I mean, obviously since I'm making a living from it and I'm able to go climbing all the time, you know, I'm very content with the whole situation, but mostly I just feel like it's sort of a a natural outgrowth. I mean, climbing gyms are becoming much more popular because people enjoy climbing, you know? And so if people are into it and and the industry is making money, then, then power to it. Well, it's, it also strikes me as sort of a, a not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but a virtuous cycle in so much as the more people see your exploits, Sharma, people of that caliber, the more they're inspired to try climbing, the better the gyms do, the more climbing Actually, you have. I don't, I don't do know. Do you not if, think that's Well, the case? Th- th- that might be true a little bit, but um, I honestly think that part of it is just having the facilities. Like the more good gyms there are in, in urban centers, the more people just wind up trying it with their friends or whatever. You know, when you have like a nice bouldering gym next to a college campus, like everybody tries it because it's fun, it's sociable, everybody has a good time. And I feel like that sort of like grows the sport. Yeah. So but, the supply helps create the demand. Yeah, to, to some extent. But 
because I really doubt that any particular climbing film can be responsible for like growing the whole industry. You know, it has more to do with tons of people like going to gyms and trying it and enjoying yeah. it and going more often. Yeah, I guess it uh, it depends a lot on a multitude of factors. I mean, with not to belabor the point or the comparison to the uh, MMA world, but like the Ultimate Fighter was kind of the breakthrough for them and then led to a lot of uh gyms opening yeah though climbing has never had anything quite that no totally like i don't follow fighting at all but i've even heard of ultimate fighter and and that kind of stuff and so i don't think climbing has really had that you know there's no like big hit reality tv climbing show you know no though actually there there have been uh the pitches for that kind of stuff though which are pretty comical What? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see the actual. <laughs> it's aliens meets bouldering. Or like, yeah. uh, no, there was an ultimate solo thing that got like pitched to me once, and I was like, dude, you can't just take random people off the street and like train them how to solo for six weeks, and then just like set them off up a big wall. It's like you know, yeah. I was like, you may as well just have gladiators fighting lions in the pit. <laughs> you know, it's like like people will literally die on your television show. Like you you don't want people dying on TV. Like, <laughs> and they're like, no no no, that's exactly what we want. Well, I was like, uh, I was like, are you guys kidding? You know because you have to insure the show and everything like no one's gonna make this because like half your contestants are gonna die like yeah. straight up that's so messed up <laughs> yeah we'll have we'll have some beer sometime and talk about <laughs> exploits in television but uh when when you are getting ready to climb something that is going to be challenging i'm not saying uh like a first descent or something like that but really anything that you're expecting to be reasonably challenging what does your self-talk sound like what is your do you have any sort of uh, prep, anything you ritual, uh, ritualistically say to yourself before you get uh, going? No, I don't really, I don't self-talk like that. But um, normally if I'm planning on doing something challenging, I spend the time sort of visualizing what the experience will feel like and what the individual section. So, I mean, with climbing, there's a there's a component to it of just memorizing the actual moves. So I'll think through the sequences and make sure that I remember like which foot to move in which order and like how to do everything. And then... Um, particularly if it's a free solo or something, if I'm climbing ropeless, then I'll think through what it'll feel like to be in certain positions because some kinds of movements are, are insecure. And so they're just like kind of scarier than other types of moves. And so it's important to me to sort of think through how that all feel when I'm up there so that when I'm doing it, I don't suddenly be like, Oh my God, this is really scary. You know, like I know that it's supposed to be scary. I know that's going to be the move. I know what it's going to feel like. And I just do it. So you rehearse the fear in a sense or rehearse the sensation. One type of which could be fear. Yeah. And I think through, you know, how airy certain positions will feel. Cause sometimes you can be all spread out with like the void below you. And you're just like, wow, this is like quite the, quite the air around me. (laughs) And so it's good to have like thought about that basically to think through all potential things beforehand. So that when you're up there, there's no like unexpected thing that happens you know we were talking uh earlier about this 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 odd looking fellow the white bust over on my counter who is for those of you who don't have a visual is is seneca (laughs) the younger uh which was a gift and of course those of you who listen to this podcast a lot know that i'm somewhat obsessed uh (laughs) compelled to read a lot of stoic philosophy and marcus aurelius and so on uh how would you describe your if you had to take a stab at it, I know this is a hard question, but you're just like general, how does your philosophy or philosophies of, of life and living differ from most people? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've never really thought of any comprehensive life, life philosophy or anything. You know, I don't feel like I have a particular set of principles that I live by though. Um, you know, I suppose I'm pretty minimalistic and, and, uh, you know, I'm leading a fairly simple life. And I mean, I guess that's, 
basically how, how I live. I don't know. What are the benefits of living simply to you? Aside from the ease of travel, but I would imagine at this point you could probably travel reasonably easily. Well, no, I mean, that's kind of it is that, um, yeah, just the ease of living, you know, basically it just cuts away everything except for what I want to be. I mean, cause my, my goal is basically to climb as much as I can. And that's what I enjoy most in life is climbing. And so everything else to some extent is a distraction from that. And so, you know, I basically just cut away the, what I don't need. So I heard a story and this was like a friend of a friend of a friend relaying something they had heard. So we'll see, we'll see <laughs> okay. where this is. Yeah. It's like telephone. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So who knows? Yeah. But they, they told this story about you free climbing and this, this free have, soloing probably. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's right. Free soloing. Uh, a big wall where at some point there were some people resting. I don't know if they were in a, how do you say it? Bivouac? Uh, Portaledge maybe? Portaledge. The camp thing that you Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you kind of ducked your head around the corner and were like, hey, can I borrow some chalk? And they're like, uh, sure. And gave you some chalk. And then you were like, thanks, great. And just kind of like continued on your merry way. Did, has anything like that happened or is that just... Yeah, some... no. So that is a real story sort of with some details. Okay. Can you, can you tell the story? Um, yeah. So I was, um, I was soloing the triple link up in Yosemite. So I wasn't free soloing, but I was climbing by myself. So I had a little bit of, I had a small rope and I had some I got gear it. Okay. So this is an important distinction. So yeah. Okay. Got it. So solo climbing is just climbing by yourself. Yeah. Free, free soloing means that you're free climbing and free no climbing rest. means using your hands and your feet yeah. and not using gear. And so if you're free soloing, it means that you're climbing with just your hands and your feet by yourself, like no gear, no anything. Got it. But so in this case, I was soloing. So I had gear. And I was soloing the three largest faces in Yosemite in a day. So Mount Watkins, which is like way up at one end of the valley. And I'd done that first. And then I came down and I was climbing the nose of El Capitan through the night. And uh, in the logistical shuffle and the darkness, whatever, I forgot my chalk bag. So I basically climbed the first thousand feet of the nose without a chalk bag. And was like, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, that's definitely not ideal. <laughs> that's an understatement. And it had actually rained a bunch the day before. So like the bottom pitches, which are lower angle, were like fairly wet. And I was like constantly trying to dry my hands on my shirt. And it was just all kind of scary. And so I got up to this ledge called Bolt Tower, which is, you know, about a quarter of the way up the wall. And uh, there were two groups bivied on the ledge. And two of the people were just like passed out. And the other two guys were like cooking dinner. And so I pop over the one side of the ledge and I'm like, uh, Hey, so could I borrow a chalk bag? And, uh, they were like, yeah, I mean, I guess like no problem, you know? And so one of the guys gave me this chalk bag that was like completely full of like fresh chalk. I was so stoked. And then, uh, I took his chalk bag and then I climbed to the top of the route and, uh, and then I left it like tied to the tree on top. I think I got it back. I met him again later. And, uh, and yeah, so they got their chalk bag back like four days later. But... <laughs> uh, do you have a particular type of chalk that you like? No, but I mean, any chalk feels amazing when you just climbed a thousand feet of wall Your with hands like are wet. wet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is, uh, what's a story? And I realize a lot of these questions are kind of out there, but what is a story that your, your family or parents like to tell about you? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'll buy us some time and let you think about it. So, so one that my parents like to tell about me is I was, uh, completely infatuated with the incredible Hulk when Lou Ferrigno was doing the TV show. So I'd run into the, into the living room when my parents had company and rip the cushions off of the couch and throw them on the floor and yell like the Hulk and run out. So my mom feels like that's in some way represents like me and my totality. That's characteristic of your... Yeah, which I don't know how to take, but that's a story that she likes to tell. Huh. Uh, anything come to mind? Um, I don't know. I mean, mom likes to talk about how I always climbed on everything as a kid and how I was such a wild child. But, um, though I honestly feel like she's kind of like, 
she, she talks about that more now that I am an actual professional climber. You know, I feel like had I become an engineer, she would instead focus on stories of like how I always love to play with blocks or do whatever. But, um, and my whole family would always tell stories about how I was such a picky eater and how I'd only eat, you know, Cheerios and bread and like whatever, just things. I don't know. But what do you, we were talking just during the sound check about eating. Uh, and I'd like to talk about that for a second. Uh, what does your typical breakfast look like? Um, generally, well, so I've kind of gone through two main phases, I guess. I used to always do like an egg scramble for breakfast. Um, and now I pretty much always do some kind of muesli concoction with like fruit and some kind of alternative milk stuff and like flaxseed hemp hearts, like random things, sort of like a wholesome muesli mix. And then I asked you about lunch and what do you have to say about lunch? Yeah. So I, I rarely eat a lunch per se. I pretty much always just snack for the several hours in the middle of the day. Um, normally like a couple pieces of fruit, maybe some nut butter, um, you know, a bar or two or something. And then I eat like a big dinner. I normally do a pretty big breakfast and a pretty big dinner and then just snack throughout the rest. Why, why no lunch? Well, the no lunch thing makes sense when you're up on a wall for the day or if you're like out at the cliff or it's just like a bunch of work to take a real meal. So I wasn't going to get to this immediately, uh, this, this early, this is early for me. I'm always premature. World. So but, what was that? I said, I'm always premature. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my friend when he drives, we call him a premature accelerator, but that's, that's, that's a whole separate story. Uh, so this is from a friend of mine who's an elite athlete, very high level female athlete. Uh, I'll ask her main question first. Actually, no, I'll ask the related question first. So the food, real hassle. So the her question was, what happens if you have to take a shit on the side of a mountain? <laughs> Meaning, oh, like, I've on got a wall. so many good pooping stories. Okay. So we could do a whole podcast on poop stories. <laughs> well, but. let's, uh, let's give a preview. That could be the round two. But yeah, let's, I, I mean, I was wondering that as Should soon as she brought it up, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Should How, I go what? straight to my most epic dump story? Yes, please. Okay. So like, uh, <laughs> a, uh, two years ago, I guess I was free soloing this route called romantic warrior and the needles, which is actually a super romantic warrior. Yeah. It's okay. like, it's actually one of the most striking granite walls, like in the world. It's this totally beautiful route on this crazy spire. It's it's an amazing, amazing route. It's something I thought about for a long time and it's actually quite difficult. And so I was going up there to free solo. It was like kind of a big thing for me and I was way stoked. And typically when you get to the base of a free solo like that, if, if you have to poop at all, like you have to go like then, you know, when you're at the base, but I was like, I don't know. It just didn't quite happen. And, uh, and so I started climbing and that route, the first 400 feet or so are like pretty moderate terrain. And then it goes into like some pretty extreme terrain for the second 400 feet. And, uh, so basically right before I got into the real stuff, I was like, Oh, now I really need to shit. I was like, Oh man, you know, basically I was like, Oh, it's about to get real up here. And like, I, now I need to poop. And so, um, I basically hand traversed on this little feature. So I traversed off the route cause it's really poor form to like shit on a route. Cause obviously yeah. people have to climb that. So hand traverse meaning you're just traveling horizontally. Yeah. So I sort of just like meandered to the left 20 feet and this flake that I was hanging off, it was like fairly big and I had a backpack on me with like my shoes and some water and some food, random things that you kind of need for, you know, going up a long route like that. And it had some TP in it. So I like shoved my backpack into the flake. And I just like hung there off of it and basically just took a poop like straight off the wall, just like while hanging. And then, you know, like wiped, tidied up is all good. And then like put my pack back on, traverse back in and then finish the route. <laughs> it's like, so no, I just want to really dig into this for a second. So cause I'm just like envisioning I had bats. Uh, I grew up on Long Island. We'd have these bats that would like crap off of the shingles and we'd be like, where the hell is that from? And then we'd see the bat kind of perched there. So what's the technique here? So you, you you're hanging off this 
snowflake. You have your backpack shoved into it, like legs straight and straddled. Are you in like a like a Just crouched sort of like a position? Semi seated crouch, you know, pushing away from the wall a bit. And are you going like out of the bottom of your shorts? Are you pulling no, them down? Pull, pull my shorts down just like okay. normal, like usual. Thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was actually totally easy. I mean, I'd call it a space dump. Space I mean, dump. Yeah, a climber would call it like a perfect space dump. It's just like <laughs> taking a dump in a free space and it just disappears. <laughs> All right, so, so what are other challenges of climbing on big walls so, aside so, from the... Yeah, don't let that give the wrong idea because normally you try to like poo in better places, you know, preferably a toilet like or at least like bearing it properly at the base or, you know, like being, being responsible about it. But like yeah. from time to time that happens, you know. Things happen. Yeah. What are other... What are other issues that crop up that people might not think of when you're doing these climbs? Well, people frequently ask, like, what do you do if you have to pee or yeah. whatever? Because they think, I mean, I think that people have the wrong impression that free soloing a big wall is just like holding on for dear life the whole time. But there are actually all kinds of little ledges. Like, even a ledge the size of, say, a pizza tray is big enough for you to stand there comfortably, no hands. Right. And so, I mean, that's an easy place that you could take a leak. You could, um, you know, take a sip of water. You can eat a little bar. And, uh, and anytime I'm on a ledge, say the size of a sofa cushion or something, I'll basically pop my shoes off and relax my toes for a minute because climbing shoes are quite tight. So like your feet start to cramp after a while. Um, I mean, there's a lot more self-care going on up there than people might think. Do you carry for that self-care? Do you carry any other tools? Any like, I don't know, nail clippers, any particular type of like, I'm just making this up, like yeah, yeah. lotion or anything. Not that you'd want that on your hands, but. No, no. I mean, I normally just take food, water, and then a pair of, say, a pro shoes so I can walk down afterward. What type of food do you bring with you? Um, typically, I just bring, you know, sports bar type. What you kind know, of like, sports bar? I'm all, I'm obsessed you with get details. You nitty gritty. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, I mean, so I used to be sponsored by Cliff Bar, so I'd, I do like, you know, shot blocks and Z-bars. I love the Z-bars, the little kids' Cliff Bars, mm-hmm. mostly because they're kind of half size. They're like 100 calories, and they basically taste like a cookie, so I can like always eat them because mm-hmm. um, they're just kind of delicious. Um, but now I've been kind of getting more into like nut butters and things though. The the typical free solos are short enough that you don't really need like a full hearty meal. You can kind of get by with like a pack of shot blocks or like one little one sugary thing Mm -hmm. to just kind of keep you going. Um, it's on like bigger climbs like alpinism or something where you have to take like a lot of, you know, fatty, like higher calorie food. So this, this is actually, I will be the first person to admit that I actually do not know what alpinism is. Uh, yeah. and, but one of the questions that came up, this is from Kelly O'Shea, one of uh, my listeners, is ask Alex about his recent achievements in alpinism. Uh, what was it like as someone who's so accomplished in one discipline to be a beginner again in another type of climbing? Can you explain what alpinism is and then how you would answer that? So alpinism, I guess, is basically just climbing bigger mountains or big snowy or icy faces or, you know, granite walls that are also covered with ice. I don't know. I mean, alpinism is just climbing the things that you see in posters where you're like, whoa, that looks like a big, scary mountain. You know, because I've always been more of a rock climber, which is climbing like vertical, dry granite walls. Um, alpinism is like when you do that in more remote places and like you hike across a glacier, you get to the bottom of some huge icy face and then you do all kinds of shenanigans to get to the top. But So what, uh, what mistakes did you make, if anyone, first starting that type of climbing? Uh, well, so basically, I mean, I haven't done a lot of alpinism and I still, I can't ice climb at all. I've like never led a pitch of ice, but I've actually done a handful of things that are considered like noteworthy alpine ascents now, but it has more to do with choosing like the right partners. Cause I go with somebody who's like way more experienced than me or just someone who has much more of a plan. And then 
it's sort of about the division of labor, you know, like someone who's good at one thing. And then I'm, I'm obviously good at the rock climbing component of it. So even though I'm a total beginner with the ice climbing and with all the logistics and the camping and like dealing with living on a glacier, all that kind of stuff is totally new to me, but at least I know how to do the climbing pretty well. So then, you know, you just find the teammate who, who complements that skill set well, and then you can go out and climb all kinds of crazy things. So now I probably mentioned this in the intro, but just in case I haven't for people listening, I'm sitting in my living room. We are sitting in my living room and we have a whole like phalanx of people surrounding us because we're filming this. Now, one of the, one of the people here has actually been on the podcast before. So Jimmy Chin, how does your climbing differ most from his? Well, Jimmy Chin is predominantly a photographer. So his climbing, it's not really climbing. It's mostly just <laughs> going up behind people to take pictures. But I'm talking to you, Jimmy. <laughs> no, I mean, but so Jimmy has been, Jimmy has been classically more of a big wall climber. Um, I mean, Jimmy's never been like the best free climb. Like, you know, I mean, he's not doing one arm pull-ups on small edges and he's not like climbing the hardest sport routes, but he's always been able to like get to the top of big walls and then been able to do that in the mountains you know, with ice and snow and bad conditions. And so he's sort of the climbing that he's been good at has been like farther along the spectrum of, you know, big and badass than the type of climbing, you know, cause I grew up in a climbing gym, um, and then sort of gradually extended to like big rock walls, you know, and, and he sort of started on big rock walls and then extended into the bigger mountains. Who were, when you were getting started, just thinking back to say the first 10 years of climbing, how old are you now? I'm 30. 30. Getting old. I thought I heard your joints creaking. Yeah, I know. Uh, I feel like it right now. <laughs> who were some of your early mentors in climbing? Um, I didn't have a lot of mentors. when I, I mean, I kind of just grew up in the gym, just climbing a lot. So I didn't really have mentors. I mean, I definitely had people that I looked up to and people in the climbing community. But that's just sort of the typical hero worshipy style. You know, like Peter Croft was a really prominent soloist from this generation before me. And I was like, oh, Peter's the man. And, um, you know, Chris Sharma obviously was, was like setting all kinds of world record type things when I was a kid. And I was just like, Oh, he's so amazing. And Tommy Caldwell was also a big hero, um, which has been cool because now I get to climb with Tommy as an adult. And I'm just like, Oh, it's pretty cool. I'm still always excited to climb with Tommy. But what, uh, if, if you were, so I'm going to take like 20 different questions and hopefully wrap it into one question and we can, we can take some time on this, but if you were taking a, let's just say an athletic rope beginner. So someone who's never done any climbing, mm -hmm. but has a decent athletic background, right? 20, 25 years old. And they want to get really good at say bouldering. Uh, and you are going to just kind of lay out, give them advice or train them for like eight weeks. What would you, what would you have them do? What would, what would the, what would that look like? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about it a lot because I mean, particularly with bowling, it's sort of, it's interesting. So adults are more prone to injury than, than kids to some extent. And especially with, with something like bouldering where, um, it's really heavy on fingers. Like basically it's really easy to injure your fingers and hands because all the connective tissue and like tendons and ligaments take a very, very long time to strengthen. So, I mean, there's no real shortcut to, to avoiding tendon injury. Mm -hmm. Whereas an adult, like a 25 year old male would gain muscle mass super fast. So really quickly they could exceed the capacity of their tendons and then basically just rip their tendons out of their arms, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like one of those things where, I mean, if I was trying to train somebody to be a good rock climber, I would focus on, on movement and technique and footwork and all those kinds of things. But if somebody was like in eight weeks, I have to be able to boulder like a certain difficulty level. I'd be like, well, I mean, just start like training your fingers and hope that you don't get injured. 
but like obviously that's not a sustainable like if you're trying to be a good climber that's not the way to do it it's better to start with like the foundation so if let's talk about the the footwork and technique then because i've we've i mean you've been to a ton of climbing gyms i've been to mission cliffs i'm not a good climber i would not say uh but i can also recognize but not dissect when I see good climbing versus bad climbing, right? Where people are just like shaking like a leaf and using all arm strength. Yeah. Uh, what, what types of advice would you give someone who wanted to do it the right way? But they're like, all right, I just, I want to focus on the, the right things. What should I really focus on? And I would are- say the right things are, are movement and technique. And so like how you move over the rock it has nothing to do with how well you can hold on or like how hard you pull. It has to do with, you know, knowing where your center of mass is and like being able to move your body around in the right way is that you can stay balanced over your feet and you can move yourself upward with your feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you conserve energy when you're climbing? I mean, leaving out the, the, the pizza sized pizza box and so on. Um, No, I mean the main ways to save energy are to keep, keep your weight on your feet, which is kind of the same thing to stay balanced over your feet so that all as much weight as possible is on your feet. So you're just standing. And then to keep your arms straight or to keep all your limbs straight so that you're hanging off your skeleton more than your muscles. Because if you have your arms bent at 90 degrees like a T-Rex or something, then you're like totally engaging your bicep and your lats and you're getting tired. If you have your arms totally straight, then you're only engaging just as much muscle as you need to keep your fingers holding on. But everything else is relaxed because you're hanging off your bones. So I want to underscore something you said a little earlier because uh, a lot of sort of aggressive dudes listening to this podcast uh, is <laughs> aggressive dudes, aggressive dudes, meaning they're like, eight weeks, let's pound, like slap on a ton of muscle on my arms and like biceps and lats and, and go crush this bouldering wall. But you made a really important point, uh, several, one of which was that if you, if you pack on a lot of muscular strength, you can outstrip your sort of tendon and yeah, connective tissue, tissue strength really yeah. quickly. Well, and, particularly as an adult. I mean, if you start climbing as a kid, then, then you gain muscle at the sort of the same yeah. You know, that's why, yeah. You're in like hormonal nirvana yeah. as a, as a adolescent. And this is something that also a guy named Chris Summer, Coach Summer, uh, underscored for me. He is the former national uh, gymnastics team coach for men's. And he was saying that <clears throat> unlike many other sports, like it's contraindicated to say use anabolics in gymnastics because all you're going to do is end up rup- rupturing a tendon or mm. a ligament for the same totally. reasons. Yeah, totally. Uh, same as climbing. Uh, what do you worry about when you go to sleep at night? If anything, like when you worry before you go to bed, what kind of stuff do you worry about? Uh, I was like, that's a quick 180. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, this is going to yeah, be full of all yeah, sorts of weird 90 degree turns. Yeah, keep listeners on their toes, you know, <laughs> so that people scrubbing through the podcast get confused. Yeah. yeah like, wait, wait, I don't want any storyline that yeah. they try to skip ahead. Yeah, exactly. With, um, uh, no, I don't really worry that much when I, when I sleep. I mean, the stuff that I get stressed about is all like real life stuff with, uh, you know, dealing with email and responding to calls and like, you know, hustling and I don't know, like doing my taxes, you know, like all the stuff that I'm just like not good at. So, so let, let me ask, this is like partially me turning this into a therapy session for myself. Okay, but, should I just lay down? Oh, for yeah. I was like going to lay on the sofa here. I'm getting all psyched. Uh, that's, that's usually my second day <laughs> podcast approach, but the, just relax. But the, uh, the, the, the question I'd like to ask is why do this, when is enough enough to fuel the climbing? Meaning, what do you hope to do with the, additional money you make above and beyond what you need to sustain climbing often because it's not at, at a certain point you surpass that pretty easily but yeah. you're certainly keeping busy 
Uh, you're, you're, you have a number of sponsors. Uh, you're tremendously good at what you do. So what do you no, want to do? With I that? mean, that is interesting because, uh, and I've, you know, thought about this a lot over the years because for say the first five or seven years that I was living in the van, my overhead's probably 10 to 15 K a year. And I now obviously make a lot more than that through sponsorship and just doing like one commercial or something, you know, I can make many times what I need to, to live in the road for a long time. And so, you know, part of that, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously saving for retirement and things like that, trying to be responsible with money. But, um, and then I've also started foundation where I've been giving probably a third of my income now to, to, uh, environmental nonprofit things. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, honestly, the foundation was kind of my my response to that kind of stuff because I was like, I just don't need to make more. But the thing is, it is actually kind of fun to make more. You know, it's like fun to do the random opportunities, like to do a commercial project or to like give some talk to some interesting company or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's kind of fun to be able to hustle out money like that. Mm-hmm. But then it's like equally fun to be able to, you know, use that money for something positive, which is, you know, through the foundation, basically. What but, is the name of the foundation? No, it's just the Honol Foundation. Easy to remember. Yeah, it's like kind of douchey, but like it kind of made sense. <laughs> I don't think it's douchey. I think it's easy uh, to remember and just yeah. sensible. The, uh, yeah. uh, so the reason I was asking about the what do you worry about before you go to bed is because there are people... I have never seen so many questions about brass balls in my life when I polled my readers for questions for you. And we've never had an in-depth conversation uh, but I know a lot of people say here in Silicon Valley or other folks who give the appearance of being invincible. They've, they never worry about anything. Uh, and it can be kind of demoralizing for people who feel like they need to be superhuman to achieve good things. And so what I always like to ask people who are spectacularly good at what they do or dig into is like what challenges they've had or what they struggle with. So for those people who say like, that guy's got everything together. He doesn't worry about anything. I'm not like that. What are some like what what are some of the challenges or um, dark periods that you've had, if any, come to mind? And if the answer is none, then that's that's a fine answer I'm too. Invincible? No, I mean, um, I'm, well, it's funny you ask me. Just in the last two months, I've had two sort of random injuries that are like super annoying, um, which I haven't really had any kind of injuries climbing in in years or like ever really. Um, but like last month in in April, I got a I got dropped by my partner, so I got lowered off the end of a rope and a like compression fractured two vertebrae in my back, and I was ultra bruised, and so my hips and butt and stuff, it, you know, my back's been really tight, and I've been kind of achy. Um, though that worked out kind of okay. It, it was two days before I was supposed to fly to China for a climbing expedition, and um, and so I was like, well, all the travel time will sort of be like good rest, I guess. And then, you know, I got there and I was like a creaky old man, but I, I actually did manage to climb the thing that we were hoping to do. And it all kind of worked out okay in the end. But, you know, there was definitely, it was a little touch and go. Cause I was like, at first, I mean, when I was going to the airport to fly to China, I couldn't even lift my duffel bags. Cause like my back was too sore and, and everything was too, too creaky. Um, and then actually just like two days ago, I took a weird fall. Well, actually I took a totally normal fall, but I somehow tweaked my hand in a weird way. And, um, actually, I mean, you can probably see the back of my right hand. Yeah. I was looking at that. Yeah. My right hand is like all messed up right now. And, um, and you know, I mean, there's definitely a lot of uncertainty there because I mean, I, I can't even like click the power button on my phone without like pretty serious pain with my right hand right now. But you know, it's been two days and it's kind of improving and you know, we'll see like, and the thing is the forecast is rain for the next three days. So I'm like, well, I'll have three days to rest. And then, you know, maybe it'll be okay or, or maybe it'll be good enough that I can at least work towards some of my other goals for the season. And then by the time it's recovered in say another two weeks, I'll be like ready to, uh, you know, do some of the things I want to do. I mean, we'll see. 
So, which, which is kind of how China went. I was like, well, you know, I can at least do all the work towards what I'm trying to climb while I'm crippled. And then by the time it was ready, by the time I was ready to, to actually try to climb the route, I was like, oh, well, I'm actually feeling good enough by now. And I was able to do it. Do you ever get depressed or have you ever been depressed? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I, th- I think I kind of gravitate towards being a somewhat depressed person. I don't know. Or I, I don't know, actually. Or I'm just sort of like flat. But, <laughs> we'll stick into that first part yeah. and we'll see what we come up with. So why do you say that you think I, I definitely, um, oscillate f- to fairly high highs and reasonably low lows. And I've been trying to take the edge, like take the 20 top, like the top and bottom 20% off of those to make it a little more manageable. But, uh, why do you say that you might tend towards? See, I feel like I don't have any of the highs and I kind of go from, from level to like slightly below level to back, hmm. you know, it's all like, it's all pretty flat. I feel like. And does but that, when I you, don't know. when you dip, does that, is that triggered by certain types of things or is it just a cycle that comes with time? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's just a cycle of time. It's like, sometimes you just feel useless, you know? But I mean, in some ways though, I embrace that as part of the process because you kind of have to feel like a worthless piece of poop in order to get motivated enough to go do something that makes you feel less useless. You know? <laughs> but then, but then ultimately that still doesn't make you feel any less useless. So then you just have to keep doing more. <laughs> so that's perfect segue to the, uh, the, the, the main question from the, from the person who asked what you do when you have to take a shit on the side of a wall. Mm. Is there, or do you ever see a point where you'll feel that you've accomplished all that you can in climbing or is there always a what's next? Um, I think there's definitely, you know, I can definitely see a point where I wouldn't continue pushing. I mean, there is always a what's next in climbing and, um, you know, I mean, you can always try to improve in some way or like go to new places or do first ascents or, I mean, you know, there is always something new to be done in climbing though. I can definitely see personally a point at which, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm satisfied. Like I've done what I need to do. And, um, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll see kind of though. I will say climbing, um, more than most other professional sports has like quite a long career span kind of because of that, because there's always more you can do with like trips and expeditions and first ascents. And, and there's a really creative process to it. You can always like come up with interesting challenges and just sort of like do things that nobody's thought of before. And so, you know, I mean, you know, they're professional climbers in their fifties that are still like getting after it like that. When, uh, when you are about to do a big climb or just a very strenuous, um, climbing workout, I'm not even sure if you do that anymore. Maybe you could talk about it, but how do you warm up if you do? Um, I always warm up pretty, pretty gently when I can just, so just, um, I mean, it depends on where I am. If I'm in a climbing gym, um, then I just warm up on a handful of easy routes and then, and then start the harder ones later. Um, I mean, for the last month and a half, I've been stretching like every morning and every night because of the back thing and because of how tight my hips and, and everything feel right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing some stretching and some like light exercise to sort of warm up and then, yeah. When you can't climb, uh, let's just say you're, you're on the road. Mm-hmm. What type of exercise do you do? I mean, I, I try to still climb when I'm on the road. Um, I mean, there's just so many gyms in different places that you can always do that. But, um, if there's absolutely nothing, then maybe I'll run or I'll go hiking or, it kind of depends on what opportunities there are. I mean, I'd rather go mountain biking than, than other things, or I'd rather go skiing if, if that's mm-hmm. available. Um, but I mean, as long as I'm getting some kind of exercise, I mean, even like stand up paddleboarding or something, I'm like, well, at mm-hmm. least I did something today, you know? 
a, a lot of recreational climbers deal with, as we've touched on earlier, sort of uh, hand issues, wrist issues, elbow issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I mean, you saw me when, when, when you guys arrived today, I had myself wrapped up in this stuff called voodoo floss because I, I, my elbows are killing me. Uh, and how have you seen climbers uh, keep their elbows and joints in good health? Is there a, there any particular approaches that, um, that you think have, have no, merit? I, mean, I don't, I don't think there's like an easy answer to that kind of stuff. I mean, I had some elbow issues for a while. Um, now it's like eight or nine years ago or something, but I had sort of like chronic elbow pain on and off for almost a year, but then eventually it just sort of resolved. And I mean, I think the best way with that kind of stuff is sort of prevention, you know, like main, maintain antagonist muscles and just sort of like stay well balanced and everything. And just, and if you start to feel achiness or pain, coming on than to, you know, take the appropriate rest or, or maybe change your training to some extent or basically just not to let it become a big problem. Cause I feel like all those overuse injuries, like once they're a problem, then it's like really hard to deal with. So the antagonistic muscles, meaning if you're doing a lot of say like flexor work, kind of gripping that you're going to use like finger extension and wrist extension and so on. Yeah. Though I've actually never done the whole extension stuff with, with hands. I don't know. But to me, um, antagonist muscles are more like doing push-ups or random, you know, or tricep pulls or things to balance out your arms a bit. Got Since it. you do so much pulling, like to mm-hmm. be able to do some kind of pushing sometimes. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, what's in your mind separates a great climber from a good climber? And you can answer that however you want. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't well, know. Let's, okay, I'll ask it. I'll ask it differently. Who impresses you right now? as a climber um, just one of i'm sure many but uh this, this kid mark andre leclerc mark andre this, leclerc. Yeah, the student of this canadian guy um he's been doing like all kinds of crazy alpine soloing you're just like whoa what but, makes it so crazy i don't know it just it just like kind of blows my mind a bit and it's funny because i actually don't ice climb or or alpine climb at a high enough level to quite understand what he's doing even mm-hmm. like so it's hard for me to probably appreciate just how hard it is but then a lot of my friends who do climb at a very high level are like whoa that's messed mm-hmm. up and i'm just like yeah respect <laughs> like i don't know <laughs> and for those people who but, want to see visuals on this stuff we'll we'll grab some video and uh links to so one of the interesting things with Mark Andre is that I don't know if there like is video of most of the stuff oh, really? he's doing. Yeah, I mean he's just going out and doing all this crazy stuff. Okay, you're just yeah. like it's um it's pretty full on. Well, I will know? I will attempt. Uh, Jimmy, you know this guy? You know of him? What what in your mind makes him impressive as a alpine alpinist or alpine climber? But I bet Jimmy hasn't even heard any of the stuff he's like recently been doing in the Rockies. It's like pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean the stuff he's just soloed in the, the Emperor face and. <laughs> yeah, it's like. So crazy. It's just. <laughs> I'll repeat for you guys listening. <laughs> and the level is like extraordinarily high, and uh, I think that in climbing, there's like people who kind of, call, you know, every generation there's mm-hmm. like an evolution, progression of the sport, and every so often there's people who come in that like jump generation. Yeah. Kind of. I feel like he's kind of in that space doing things that people weren't considering. So he's his ears. So just to try to paraphrase here, so his commitment level is just next level, and he's sort of pushing everyone else to consider things that haven't been done. Usually, like alpine climbing at that level is that commitment level is based on how much experience you have, and he's very young. Mm-hmm. Though he does have a ton of experience, really. I mean, you know, because he's just done so much of it. Yeah, he, he's yeah. been doing like a. But I mean, for like you know, normally. Yeah, yeah. So the commitment level, meaning pushing the envelope, is usually predicated on experience level. Therefore, you see the, some of the older guys doing it. But 
Not, not even. You're not, you're not seeing all the guys doing it. Yeah, because they're all like, that's messed up. <laughs> on the, on the, uh, on the danger side, um, this is a question from Paul Jones. So being the first sponsored superstar of free soloing, do you ever have concerns about the influence that you could have on young climbers who um, may not put in the mileage and the training to get to a point where they can do it as safely? Yeah. Well, so there are two things. One, I'm definitely not the first superstar or whatever. Um, cause there are a bunch of European climbers who are well known for soloing who've, you know, come before me. And even in the U S somebody like John Backer was like super well known in the 1970s and he was on all kinds of TV programs. It might not have been sponsorship in the same way that we have today. Cause the industry wasn't the same, mm-hmm. but he was definitely on, you know, like the evening news and all kinds of crazy things, free soloing. So, um, I mean, I'm definitely not the first by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I was obviously a kid who was influenced by that kind of stuff, but then I've gone through, you know, years and years of, of practice or whatever. Um, I kind of feel like soloing is a bit, um, I don't know, almost like self-regulating in a way, because the thing is, is that anybody can watch a video and be like, I want to do that. But then as soon as they climb 15 or 20 feet off the ground, they start to have a very frank discussion with themselves. Like, do I really want to do this? You know, like it suddenly feels very scary. Cause I mean, people have like an overwhelming fear response to the prospect of falling to their death, you know? And so I have an overwhelming fear response yeah. to just watching videos. of you. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of the thing is that hardly anybody sees that film is like, Oh, I'm going to go do that. And then even, even if they do, once they start trying to do it, I mean, it is actually quite difficult to climb these walls. So it's not as if some kid can just like wander up and do that. And then, and even if they are strong enough or like, you know, well-versed enough in climbing to climb a little bit, then they're also like, wow, this is really, really scary. I didn't expect it to be this scary. And then they just climb back down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, you know, I've thought a little bit about influencing kids and like, you know, wondering if that's a bad thing, but in general, like you just don't really see copycat things. Like you see it a lot more in, in gravity assisted sports or like action sports. So like kayaking or skiing or something where like anyone can just line up at the top of a cliff and be like, I'm going to huck this cliff and I'm going to stick it and it's going to be sick, you know? And then once they sort of commit and start going, it's like they're going off the cliff right, one way or another. They can start the music. They can't turn it off. Yeah, exactly. But with climbing, it's like, each move that you make upward is like a decision that you're going to continue going upward. You have to decide over and over. Like, I want to keep going. I want to keep going. I want to keep. And at a certain point you're like, I don't really want to keep going. Like, I think I want to go down. And then you're just like, mommy, you know? And then like, yeah, I mean, have you ever hit that point when it was, let's just say, when I've started screaming for mommy. (laughs) Well, yeah. Scream for mommy or like hundreds of feet up. And you're like, I don't want to keep doing this. Yeah, no, I've definitely had a bunch of time soloing where I'm like, I'm not into this. I'm going down. And what happens then? Because I've, I've never seen footage of you climbing down. Well, the and thing is, tr- yeah. the, but that's kind of a practical thing is that if you have people that are filming with you, it's like, obviously you're doing something that you've rehearsed or, or you know a lot about, or it's like a, you know, it's a classic enough route that it's worthy to film on. Like you have all those epic misadventures on things that like, aren't that well known that, you know, people aren't climbing all the time, but no, so I've had tons of experiences where, um, especially when I was younger, I didn't really know how to read topos that well, the little maps that show you like where a climbing route goes. So I'd look at it and be like, okay, I think I'm climbing that big corner. And then I'd go up there and be like, this isn't even the right route. Like, what the heck am I doing? And then I'd start like questing way to the left or right being like, well, maybe if I traverse 200 feet that way, then I'll get to the real route. And then you're like, Oh God, what am I doing? And then it all starts to go South, you know? Uh, and, and then you would climb down in an instance. Well, or I would like, quest over to some other route and escape off quest over is is just a traverse yeah or or whatever you know there have been a couple routes where i've been like especially when i was younger when i was soloing a route 
and I get up and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm on a bolted face, but this root isn't supposed to have bolts. And then I'm like, oh no, I'm on the wrong route. And then you like look over and you see that the real route you're supposed to be on is like a hundred meters to the right. And then you're like, I wonder what route I'm on. And then you're like, oh, I hope it's not hard. And then you're something like shit. And then you start like pulling on the bolts, which is cheating. Um, and you're just like, whatever it takes to like get off this wall, you know? And so you're like pulling on bolts and stepping on bolts and like doing whatever just to like get to the top. And then later you're like, oh, I wish I knew how to read the guidebook. (laughs) Uh, now, so this is, this is a related question. Uh, from Drew Cordova. So there's a video that shows Alex climbing El Cap free solo where he said he was freaking out. No, so that's... Uh, incorrect? Well, there are all kinds of incorrect I'm sure there's lots that, of yeah. Yeah. yeah, just go on and I'll, I'll respond again. Where he's freaking out on the cliff face at one point. I'd like to know from his perspective what it takes to overcome that fear. Uh, okay, so the video clip that he's referring to, I'm actually free soloing the face of Half Dome, which mm. is a different wall. Yep. Um and that's actually complicated because it shows me standing on this ledge on half dome, like having a moment being really scared. But we shot that film like a year after my actual free solo. So I'd, I'd gone up there and soloed it by myself, nobody around, which is kind of the point of free soloing normally. And then we'd gone back and filmed on it. And when we filmed on it, I walked out on that ledge and like had a moment where I was a little bit afraid and then like sorted myself out, turned around and, and climbed back. But then they used the voiceover of me talking about the original experience when I'd actually been free soloing it the year before, um, where I had like a much more significant moment on a section 100 feet higher, which is actually quite difficult climbing. Because like walking across a ledge is never that scary. You know what I mean? Like in the grand scheme of rock climbing, like when you're standing on a ledge, like you're not scared. Um, it just happened in that case because I was standing face out, which is like a little off balance and a little scary. And I was like, whoa, this isn't what I expected. But it's not that big a thing. Mm-hmm. But the actual experience up high, it was like one of those things where they caught this moment on film and it kind of went yeah. well with the voiceover. The so they were like, oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it made for a great film and it definitely like shares the free solo experience pretty well. It was one of those things at first I was like, I was sort of annoyed that it's not the literal, like this isn't what happened. But the thing is like nobody's there when it actually happens. So then it does share the experience pretty well. So in the actual yeah. Half Dome experience when it was scary, mm-hmm. even though, like you mentioned earlier, you've kind of rehearsed what it's going to feel like as you're going up this this route what do you what do you and not to belabor this point but it's it's uh it's something i'm fascinated by what's going through your head and how do you well so that particular half dome free solo i actually hadn't rehearsed it that much really um i'd sort of intentionally chosen not to rehearse the route very much because i was like oh that's going to take the adventure out of it i want to just go up there and do it um which in retrospect like wasn't the best idea but so uh yeah, on half dome, I didn't, I hadn't memorized the sequences. I didn't really know like exactly what I should do. I just knew that I could do it. Mm-hmm. I knew that I'd gone up there and I'd done it. It was fine and that I was able to. Um, you know, in retrospect, I probably should have spent a little bit more time. And so why I got so scared was I got up to a certain sequence and I basically like didn't want to trust a specific foothold. And I was like, Oh, this feels like my foot's going to slip and I don't want to fall. And then I tried to use some other feet, but I was like, Oh, this doesn't these are worse. And, you know, so you're standing there hesitating being like, what should I do? What should I do? And then you start to get all gripped like, Oh God, what if I can't figure it out? And like, you're obviously getting more and more tired as you stand there, your calves are getting pumped and you know, yeah, it's just, it's traumatizing. All right, we're back, back in action. So during the little break, we were just talking about some, some past lives and, uh, (laughs) it's mentioning that I, wanted to be a comic book penciler, was an illustrator for a period of time paying expenses in college and had this other weird side gig of bouncing, which was terrible because I was always the smallest guy uh, as a bouncer. But what are the, what are the best and worst jobs that you've, that you had prior to climbing? 
I haven't really had that many jobs. I mean, I worked at the climbing gym as a kid, um, just, you know, cleaning the bathrooms and doing summer camp stuff with kids. And then I worked doing night security at Berkeley for, for a semester that I was there. I mean, I was only at Berkeley for a year. And so for my second semester there, I was doing night security. I was basically just like walking around campus at night getting paid to like look at buildings. <laughs> but, uh, when you were at Berkeley, how did you decide to leave? And what was that calculus like? I mean, how long um, did yeah, it take I mean, you I didn't, I didn't decide to just drop out of Berkeley. It was more that I wasn't really happy there. And then, um, my first year at Berkeley, I happened to get second at, at uh, the national at nationals. And so I got invited to the youth world cup, um, which was during what would have been my second fall semester. And so I decided to take the semester off and then go do, you know, youth worlds and then travel a bit and climb and do whatever. Um, and also my father happened to die the summer after freshman year and he was part of the pressure for like going to school and not really pressure, but he just sort of like expected the kids to go to college type thing. And then when he died, it also left life insurance money for my sister and I to finish school. And so, you know, that sort of allowed me to not, to not go back to school. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And so just kind of a combination of events just led me to take the semester off. And then I just like, you know, I've just taken the next 10 or no, like 20 semesters off since then. Were you, uh, close to your dad? Um, I, I was fairly close to my dad. I mean, or we weren't super close in like talking about things and like having, having deep chats, but he definitely invested a ton of time in me. You know, he took me to the climbing gym all the time. He would drive me all over the state to competitions. You know, he would take me camping, take me outside. Like, you know, we, we, we would do, be doing family camping trips in the mountains and stuff. Um, so, I mean, he definitely put a ton of energy into me. Do you, and I apologize, I don't know your status. Do you want to get married, have kids? Um, yeah, I think I'd like to have a family someday. So that, that brings up something that I, I've wanted to talk about and I hesitated to ask in part because I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but as it relates to mortality, let's just say that somebody came to you. So this is kind of two in one. Uh, they said, I have $10 million and I'm going to dedicate it to you, but with the following condition, you have to predict how you're going to die accurately. And in that case, it goes to the cause of your choosing. So what would you predict and what cause would it go to? Um, that's interesting. And if I predict wrong, it just like doesn't go it anywhere. It dis- disappears. Yeah, poof. Um, okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I would predict, I don't know. I'm sort of 50, 50 between natural causes, just like dying of old age at some point or like climbing accident in the grander scheme of like, not necessarily, um, you know, like falling to my death, which is what people think with the free soloing, but just the random stuff like, you know, rappelling in the mountains or like being swept by an avalanche or like being hit by a random rock, because there's a lot of just like random chance or not a lot, but there is random chance involved with climbing. And just the fact that I am out climbing all the time, like it wouldn't be shocking if some random thing just happened to me like that. Um, though, I mean, that's kind of the, the, you know, price, price to play, you know, like if you're going to be in those places, like there is just a random, random risk associated with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, and then the cause I would devote it to, 
um, I don't know, some probably environment. I mean, basically the stuff that I'm supporting through my foundation, which is, uh, you know, any kind of environmental project that like improves standard of living, which has mostly been, uh, like off grid solar projects or like energy access and stuff for off grid solar and energy access for, for whom or where for are like rural communities. I mean, I've been supporting a group that does that kind of work in Africa, which, you know, makes sense because folks have no access to energy. And um, I've also been supporting grid alternatives here in the States, which does, uh, like home PV systems for like low income families. Um, Basically, it's just a way to like help, you know, folks that need some help and it helps the environment, obviously. And just when we took a break, you were talking about, we were talking, talking about books and uh, the fact that you read mostly nonfiction. Uh, what nonfiction books have had a, had an impact on you or that, or do you particularly like? Um, I mean, in the last several years, I mean, some of the most noteworthy books I've read, I guess, um, like a people's history of the U.S., the Howard Zinn book totally changed the way I look at politics. Um, and then in the same way, uh, I read a book recently called sacred economics that like totally changed the way I looked at economics, sacred economics. Yeah. It was actually totally interesting. I forget who the author was now though. I didn't know. Him, I will, we will look it up and you put, should, it, put you it should, in the show notes. Sacred economics was like kind of awesome. It like, yeah, it changed my world a bit. What, uh, what's, what are the, what's the kind of basic thesis of sacred economics or is it, um, I don't know what too, the author would say the thesis yeah. but um but the things that I took away from it were well I mean basically he's sort of envisioning different systems for like a more just kind of economics you know cuz I mean current our current style of capitalism basically just concentrates wealth in the hands of the already wealthy you know and that's kind of like by definition the way interest rates work and stuff like if you have a lot you'll just continue to make a lot and that's not a fundamentally fair system because if you don't have anything you continue having nothing but if you already have more than you need, you just get more and more and more. And that's just like not the way the world should work, I don't think. Or at least I don't. And so one of the ideas that he throws out in the book, which I found totally interesting, was like negative interest rates. So like um, if you have a lot, it basically just like slowly dwindles away unless you're actively using it for things like investing it into things. So, you know, just by having a lot of money is not going to guarantee that you continue to have a lot of money. Unless you're allocating it in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're using it wisely to like create value. But how do you assess risk, whether that's with, uh, and you can, you can focus on one of these, but whether that's on a particular climb, on like a business venture, a decision to do A versus B, how do you, how do you think about risk? Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting question because obviously I spend a ton of time thinking about risk. But I just don't have like a clear cut, you know, like I don't have clear metrics for like, oh, you know, this is, and it, because with the climbing so much of it comes down to a feeling of like, I feel a lot of fear when I think about that. Obviously it's not for me. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. And I've never really had to evaluate business ventures and things. So when, uh, so let's touch on something you just said, which is if you're very afraid of something, then that's something you shouldn't do. So do you then climb say hard routes in an absence of fear or is it present and then you overcome it? That's a good question. Um, I generally climb hard routes in the absence of fear. I generally don't go up on them unless I feel comfortable and I don't have that fear. Yes. Though. Yeah, though. I mean, it's important to sort of differentiate fear and risk and like all the terms, I guess, definitely because, um, you know, I mean, if there is a high level of risk, I mean, you should be feeling fear. I mean, fear is sort of that warning that, you know, like that there is real danger. And so like, if there is danger present, like, I mean, you should be feeling fear. And so, 
you know, and there are times and maybe you should just suppress that fear and, and go for it anyway. Maybe not. I don't know. But so with the free soloing, typically if I'm feeling a lot of fear, then, um, I just, you know, wait and prepare more or, or I don't know, some do whatever it takes to mitigate that to like, to feel comfortable and then, and then do the climb when I feel comfortable. And do you have a, my, my, my suspicion says no, but do you have a, a checklist? Like I have to do this with gear X number of times and then do this Y number of times before I'm willing to free solo this or is it just I don't have a checklist but I definitely have a degree of comfort that I need to feel on the route before I'm willing to solo it. What does that feel think, like? What is Well, that? it just feels like a certain I, I guess I need to have a certain amount of reserve, I guess. You know, I, I need to feel like I can climb the route in a variety of conditions um and and have some extra in the tank just in case, mm-hmm. you know. Like if I can climb the route only by the narrowest of like razor thin margins, like I mean that's probably not good enough for free soloing. And, uh, the definitions point is important. So for instance, I'm involved with a lot of speculative startups or startups, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're speculative, they're all or, speculative. Yeah. I mean, most of <laughs> would be considered very highly speculative and people say, wow, that's a really high risk investment. You have a very high risk tolerance, right? Doing things in entrepreneurship and so on. And I've never felt that way. I actually feel like I'm focused on risk mitigation at all times. Uh, and, uh, so for me, I thought about it at one point cause they're like, Oh, you have a really high risk tolerance, risk, risk, risk. And I was like, well, wait a second. Like we should try to figure out the definition of this term that we're using before we have an, a discussion. Well, and, about and it. Isn't the thing with startups is that you're sort of willing to lose money on a certain number as long as like exactly. some so, of them come out. Right. No, exactly. So I, I mean, so you're sort of just doing the math on the overall picture. It's like, doesn't matter if some of them fail. That's exactly right. And what, what's important, at least in that game, right, is, or that sport, I mean, you can look at it that way, is <laughs> following your own rules. Like if you set rules yeah. and you understand, say, portfolio theory and the math, if I follow these rules is going to, is going to turn out likely this way. Therefore, I need to make X number of investments. Yeah. Or, that, or at least having like a plan that you're willing to stick to right. and not, and then not start to just get hog wild where you're like, well, this guy said that he and can not deviate on it. Yeah. yeah exactly. exactly. So, yeah. so what I realized for myself that, risk in my mind is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. And if I look at it that way, if I do something that fails, if I can get back to where I was very easily, then that's not a risk. It's not a high risk, for instance. Do you uh, do you think you relate to risk or think about it differently than other people? Um, no, I mean, all that's pretty much in line with the way I look at risk. I mean, yeah, I mean, with the startup stuff, I wouldn't consider that particularly risky because, like, obviously people make a lot of money off startups. It's just a matter of, like, doing it well. And, and like, you know, playing the stock market and things like that, people obviously make a lot of money. So it's not, like, a fundamentally risky activity. It's just a matter of, like, how you do it, how well you do it. And obviously I'm not in either of those worlds at all. So, I mean, for me, it probably would be dangerous <laughs> because, you know, I'd be like, well, now I have no money. But it's because that's not my thing. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about it. What but, is the best decision you've ever made not to do something? Or a good decision that you've made not to do something? Well, I think pretty much any of the free solos that I've backed off of and climbed down were probably all pretty good decisions. I mean, who's to say? I mean, maybe they all would have been fine and I would have just like climbed to the top and had a nice day. But, you know, there's no point in second guessing that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you're dead. not psyched, you're not psyched. Uh, but I haven't had any like clear or like near misses where I decide not to climb something and then there's like a huge avalanche that sweeps the whole mountain and you're like, thank yeah. God I wasn't up there. Uh, you have a very minimalist lifestyle. Uh, what is what is something that you spent too much on but don't regret, or something that you spend too much on but don't regret, or a uh, lot on? Too much is too judgmental. Um, 
I, I don't know. I don't think it's too much, but um, when I bought noise canceling headphones, I was like, this seems really indulgent, but it made my life so much better. Like, I love traveling with noise canceling headphones. It's like uh, my favorite possession. I think. <laughs> How do you use them? I just, I mean, I cancel noise with them. It's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you use them all the time when you're traveling or um, are they specific? Like in the airport and on the plane, I pretty much have noise canceling headphones on the whole time. I love it. I'll just like listen to soft music and like read my book or work on my computer, do whatever, you know, just hang out. But I just like love not having all the crazy bustly noise around me the whole time. What type of music do you listen to most often when you're flying? Um, flying, I do a lot of soundtracks. Like, mm-hmm. so it's sort of like classically type music, but you know, set to Indiana Jones, let's say, or whatever. <laughs> Braveheart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, I've never done the Braveheart soundtrack, <laughs> but like Last of the Mohicans is a favorite. That's a, a great, great soundtrack. soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you ever climb to music? Um, I'll do easy climbing to music for sure. Um, I normally just have my phone in my pocket and we'll just blast it like, you know, stereo style. Um, but that's only if I'm climbing something where there's nobody around. And cause I think it's super annoying when you like hike up to people on a trail with like a boom box going, cause obviously it's like diminishing their outdoor experience. What do you, um, in those cases, what type of music do you listen to? Um, I pretty much only listen to like modern rock, like hate rock and stuff. Like what? I said, like what kind what, of bands? What, or yeah. What kind of bands? Oh, I don't know. Like, no, um, I, I was listening to like bad religion. We listened to Metallica last night on the drive and like, you know, I don't know, Chevelle or, you know, tool or random, whatever what is something that people and this is in in quotes know about you that is wrong i don't know i mean i think a lot of people i mean certainly online commentary a lot of people think i have a death wish or like have never experienced fear like just don't don't care about my safety i mean the thing is that if you just watch youtube videos you get the impression that i just like walk up to a wall and climb it and like you sort of miss the 20 years of of climbing culture that's behind it you know the fact that i've that there's a huge history behind all these routes and I know a lot about them and I have tons of friends that have climbed them and I can, I could like recite half the moves on them from memory. You know what I mean? Like there's a ton that goes into it that people like don't see in a three minute YouTube short. And you know, yeah. Well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I Laird, had Laird Hamilton on the podcast, right? The sort of undisputed king of big wave surfing and people would, it's funny how people look at that and they have a different judgment than when they look at you on a wall, even mm. though in practical terms, you think? I mean, don't people look at his big wave surf and be like, that guy's crazy. He has a death wish. Well, because I kind of do. I'm like, that's what looks insane to me. So <laughs> like, I think that it's slightly the degree, the frequency with which I hear people say that is different because they look at a wall and they're like, oh, I could climb up things. But they look at a hundred foot wave and somebody getting towed in on a jet ski and they're like, I wouldn't even be able to stand up on the board while getting pulled on a jet ski. Hmm. Therefore, assumption, assumption, assumption. Uh, what do you think of, say, uh, freedivers who try to break records in freediving? I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but it does seem like it's one of the riskiest sports in the world. I mean, more people die doing that than virtually anything else. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes with wingsuiting or something where, like, yeah. you know, it's fair to say that it actually is quite risky because people do actually die all the time doing it. Have you ever done any wingsuit stuff? Um, no, I did my AFF, so I, like, learned how to, to parachute out of a plane. Um, on the thought that I would maybe eventually learn how to base jump or something. And then I was basically just like, I'm not into this. I'm like, I don't think this is cool. I don't like it. Just the, just because the risk, the downside risk, no, I the mean, downside is too high. Um, no, uh, skydiving is not dangerous, you know? So, I mean, when you're yeah. learning out of the plane, like it's not sketchy at all, but mostly I was like, I just don't like this, you it's, know? And like, I don't want to devote the energy to like learning how to do this. And I sort of realized how much it would take for me to, to feel comfortable doing that. And I was like, this is just dumb. I'm not into it. Yeah. And then as it turns out, 
Um, you know, like one of my good friends and climbing partners died wingsuiting. And then last year, uh, notably Dean Potter died wingsuiting. And so, I mean, you know, climbing has lost a lot of high end climbers to wingsuiting accidents. It's like, yeah, I mean, it is a very dangerous activity. Uh, you mentioned Dean Potter. Do you, sl- I mean, I, I think when I hear his name, uh, I also associate it with slacklining. Sl- exactly. <laughs> slacklining. You seem to have like perfect slacklining feet. I, I mean, maybe we could take I mean, a photograph. They're I mean, all messed up. Yeah, you, you've got some amazing, like, functional feet. Do you slackline Functional. Much? That's a very kind way of putting <laughs> deformed. But yeah, highly functional, yes. Do you, sl- do you slackline or what's your opinion? No, slack I can line? slackline at like a low level. You know, I can like walk lines back and forth just because there's so many slacklines in campgrounds and climbing areas and things. You know, I, I definitely have done a fair amount of slacklining. And I can do some like really easy tricks and things, but, Mm -hmm. but no, I'm definitely not a slackliner and I've never done any high lines and I'm not like, I'm not into slacklining. When you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind for you? When I hear successful? Yeah. Just the word successful. I mean, when you just said it, I thought Elon Musk, but then like, I have no idea, you know, (laughs) because I don't know, but I don't know that much about business, but I'm just like, that's rad. (laughs) Is there, uh, is there anyone that you would want to model your life after in any way? Um, probably not, but though I do like reading, you know, a biography or something and then sort of, um, like I have some notes on my phone of like lists from random things I've read, you know, where you sort of choose little lessons out of like a book about somebody and you're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, like that person did these things well. And those are all things that I could apply to my life. But you know, I wouldn't want to model my whole life on somebody. It's more like, you know, cherry picking the good lessons here and there. Uh, which biographies have produced a lot of notes for you? I, I've or just done the, this a few times. But so I, I read um, the biography of uh, uh, Brad Washburn, who was like a big, if you know him, he was like an I Alaska don't. explorer photographer. He also ran the like a natural history museum in, in uh, Boston, I think. Um, but so he just had like a wide and varied career and he was like a National Geographic explorer type. You know, he just did a lot with his life. And so after I finished reading the book, I was like, whoa, this guy like got shit done, you know? And I don't know, you know, I respect that. And so I just like kind of thought about it. What is something that you believe that other people think is crazy? That I believe that other people think is crazy. I don't know. I mean, I think that my evaluation of risk and all the things we were just talking about, a lot of people think is totally crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, I mean, I think it's because they don't have a full set of facts on it, you know, that they don't quite appreciate it in the same way that I do. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't know if I have any other like totally outlandish beliefs like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, uh, I'm sure you've had this question before, but would you consider yourself a religious person? Do you have a particular belief system? No, I'm like strongly atheist and just like not into religion at all. Mm-hmm. Were your parents religious at all or no? Um, yeah, mom is at least used to identify as Catholic. She'd probably still say that she believes in God, though there's no evidence of it at all. You know, like she doesn't go to church anymore or do anything. But um, yeah, so as kids, we, we were taken to church. But at no point did I ever believe anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so th- there was no sort of transitionary period. It was just no, from, I know, from day it, one. It's funny, like even though we were being taken to church, I just always thought it was all a bunch of weird stories. You're just like, it made no sense to me. I'm like, why would you believe in some invisible thing that, you know, I'm like why would you ever believe any of that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's weird. It's weird that so many bu- adults believe all that stuff because it still doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of yeah. stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense that people believe too. Yeah. You know, well, a lot in the theater of politics yeah. and elsewhere too. Yeah, well, you know. But uh, this is going to be a gear shift. I mean, not, I mean, we're shifting <laughs> a lot of gears. I'm grinding out the transmission of gears. But yeah, 
Uh, food. I want to talk about, <laughs> do you have any particular thoughts on food or how do you think about eating yourself? Uh, not I, literally eating yourself. But yeah, you get the yeah. idea. Uh, I mean, I'm not much of a cook and I don't like love food or food prep or anything. You know, I mean, if I could, I would just like take a pill and be like fully, fully fed all day, every day and just be like, sweet, I don't have to worry about it. But, um, I don't know. I mean, in the last couple of years, I've, I've gone vegetarian, um, which has more to do with all like the environmental nonfiction I've been reading. It's more just as like one of the few things that I can do as an individual to like really have an impact on the world. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you have any, uh, do you have any go to dinners? Like what are your most common dinners? What do they look like? Um, I mean, for all the years that I've lived in the van, one of my go-to dinners was like mac and cheese with, with stuff in it, you know, like adding a vegetable. I used to add tuna to it a lot. Then I've switched to just like vegetables or, you know, maybe some beans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you're like mac and cheese and chili though. Now I'm sort of easing away from the mac and cheese too. Cause I've kind of stopped eating dairy, but so like, you know, rice and vegetable stuff or, uh, like lentils or whatever. Keeping it simple. Yeah. So many questions. So many questions I want to ask. Do you have any morning rituals? Like what are the first 60 days, 60 days, the first 60 yeah. minutes of your day um, look like? They're, pretty much always just get up and have like a big breakfast and then go climbing. That's kind of the standard. And when is so usual wake up time? For the last two months, I've been waking up, doing some 15 minutes of stretching, then eating my breakfast, then going climbing just because of the back stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, wh- What time do you generally wake up and go to bed? Um, I generally... I'm pretty unstructured, so I basically just go to sleep whenever I'm, whenever I need to, or whenever it makes sense. Then I just wake up whenever. I try to sleep as much as I want to. <laughs> what is that typically amount? I mean, I people think they're like, oh, that four-hour work week guy. Like, I must sleep three hours a night. I try to sleep eight to ten. Maybe yeah, no, I'm all about the eight to ten for sure. Okay. I think last night. I mean, I was sleeping in front of your house last night. <laughs> I think I slept. Uh, <laughs> I think I slept nine last night. <laughs> well, because okay, wait a second, is that the van? Yeah, yeah, that's my car. <laughs> I just went out walking my dog and I was like, who's camped out in front of my house? Yeah, yeah no, That is fucking car. hilarious. Okay. Yeah. yeah. With like the reflectors in the window. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, who is yeah. like, trying to kidnap me? Who is no, no, this? That's, that's my rape wagon parked in front of your house. <laughs> well, it was, it's one of those things like, yeah, we drove to San Francisco last night and then I'm like, well, I don't want to park somewhere else and then have to drive here in the morning. Right, right. So I'm like, I'm just going to go park there. I'm going to sleep <laughs> as late as possible. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to come in and do a podcast. It's going to be like totally chill. <laughs> Right. From, from but that's the thing about living in a car is you're all about like minimizing the wasted time. You know, there's no point in like driving around in circles. You just park where you need to be, sleep, and then do your thing. It's that's awesome. amazing. All right. So and the thing I, is, after and I've lived in a van for like ten years now, you know, it starts to become a routine. It's like hard to imagine like going to a hotel, moving all your shit into a room, moving it back into your car later, moving the car. You're just like, what a waste of time. I just want to like park where I need to be. So a lot of people have asked this, and I'm kind of curious myself. <clears throat> Like the logistics of Alex Arnold. So if you have a date and the date goes well, what then? They come back to the van. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice van. It's like a, you call it a little mini home or whatever. You know, yeah. one of the micro home stuff or yeah. what's it called? Yeah, little tiny houses. homes. Yeah, yeah tiny homes. Yeah, a bunch yeah. of tiny home books right there over there. There you go. See, I have one up front. Yeah. It's a tiny uh, little home. So now before you go out on the date, you're like, just in case this goes well, do you put out like, like, like some rose petals in a bowl of water or like, do no, you get prefer- preferably go back to their place. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's like a little class here. Uh, do you have any favorite documentaries or movies? Um, I don't know. Not particularly, I guess. Um, I mean, my movie taste runs sort of just straight, like Hollywood action movie, like total fluff, you know, like Gladiator or something. Mm-hmm. Just like fun times. 
Um, like, yeah. Roger. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll keep that. At it's that. all pretty. Yeah. It's all just pretty like unimpressive, <laughs> but it's kind of because like movies, cause I do a lot of like reading nonfiction and stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like movies fill the fluff category. You know, like I hate heavy nonfiction or like heavy documentary type films. I just like fall asleep through that. So. Just too much thinking after all yeah, the nonfiction like, computing. Know. What movies have you seen the greatest number of times? Is there anything you've watched like over and over again? I have that habit. Um, I've probably seen the Star Wars movies a lot, a lot of times, but that's partially just because I started when I was a kid and then I've like rewatched them over the years. Um, I don't know if I've seen anything else like more than that, probably. Yeah, I think I have maybe weird numbers because for each of my books, I, I get very, I feel very isolated if I'm writing at night in a dark house by myself. So I always put you this. You put on certain movies. I have movies for each book. There are usually one or two movies that I'll just put on repeat hmm. and I'll put them on mute. And then listen to music, like the same tracks over and over and over Whoa. and over again. Your brain might be like hardwired in some weird ways here. Well, I gotta, I, I, that's definitely true, but that's I gotta, get, t- that's getting tweaky. I gotta, I gotta, I had a recommendation from this, uh, very, 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 uh, brilliant and capable entrepreneur named Matt Mullenweg, who's a great coder. And he always, he listens to the same single track over and over again, almost like a noise machine when he's, coding Mm. and i thought okay well i'll try that with writing and it worked really really well but the movies end up being really weird because yeah so what movies are we talking so well for the four-hour work week it was the this isn't that weird i I think these are fine movies but the born identity Mm. was the first and then for the four-hour body it was casino royale which i think is a Fantastic. I was hoping you were going to say like Rocky or something. It'd be nonstop training montages. Well, you know, there are a lot of fight scenes and the parkour sequence in the beginning uh, with yeah, Sebastian yeah, yeah, Foucault, totally. yeah, who's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a whole separate. I didn't know that was him. Oh, oh yeah. So that's good. Cool. And uh, then for the four hour chef, the, this is super, this is the off theme completely, but I was just looking for a movie when I was just getting started. And on Amazon Prime, the first movie that popped up was Babe. Like With a little pig? pig, yeah, Farmer Hoggett, and I watched Babe like a thousand times because I just put it on repeat and watch it like four or five times a night. Whoa, go figure. Yeah, we could psychoanalyze that. Uh, <laughs> hardcore, <laughs> hardcore. Aside from the noise canceling headphones, what purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last, say, I mean, six months? Definitely my van. Definitely your van. Yeah, I mean, no question. Yeah. I mean, the last van that I, I you know, I bought a ten thousand dollar van and lived in it for ten years. And then uh, this new van that I bought, it's the new van, so it's obviously a bit pricier, but it's like pretty awesome, and I'll probably live in it for another 10 years. Well, maybe not actually live in it, but you know, I'll be based out of it. Uh, so, so again, returning to the, uh, this, is, this is not directly related to the dating in the van, but this is, this is a question from Michael Cipriano. Uh, I've always found climbing to have a large positive effect on my libido. Do you, does Alex find this to be the case? <laughs> Well, I've climbed for my entire life, so I mean, maybe it explains just the permanent tremendous libido. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do no, you, I mean, is that for real? That's is a real question. Really, like, yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know, <laughs> but I mean, that's probably true of anybody who's like staying active and staying fit, and you know, yeah. you know you're just like, it's the way your body's supposed to work. Yeah. Uh, are there ways that you've seen lessons learned or skills developed in climbing translate to other parts of your life? And if so, does any, are there any particular examples come to mind? Um, 
I don't know exactly. I mean, so I've gained a lot from being a professional climber, like having to go and give talks and like do the whole work side of climbing. I mean, that's really like helped me grow as a person and feel comfortable doing public speaking and all that kind of stuff. Though I think from the actual climbing itself, maybe the most useful thing I've gotten has been sort of being able to differentiate, you know, risk and consequence and fear and like all these different things and sort of being able to separate my feelings from what's actually happening. You know, like, oh, I feel fear, but is that fear justified because I'm actually in danger or is that like totally irrational fear that I should just squish and like move forward with something? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel like climbing has sort of helped me understand like the different things that are going on there. You know, whereas I, I feel like a lot of people are just like, oh, I'm afraid. And then they're just like, oh, God, I'm afraid. You know, but sometimes like, I mean, fear shouldn't necessarily control you any more than anything else. You know, desire I mean, like, or fill in the blank. Well, yeah, I mean, like hunger. Emotion. You know, when you're really hungry, you're not like, oh God, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. You know, just like, oh, I'll eat lunch in two hours. You know, and I feel like fear to some extent should be the same way where you can just register like, oh, I'm feeling fear right now. But sometimes that doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes it does and you need to be like, oh, you know, I'm about to die. Like I should watch out for that. But, but a lot of times, I mean, you should be able to just set that fear aside and just do exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, so I mean, in a way, I mean, you're a connoisseur of fear, right? I mean, you can, you can distinguish sort of the, vari- yeah, the, the, the varietals of fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. Fear so yeah, that, I yeah. Mean, yeah, when you experience enough fear in your life, you're like, no, now I can sort of differentiate between all the different types. Yeah. Uh, do you drink coffee or caffeine? No, though I don't have, I just don't like coffee. Um, and I don't really like tea, and, but I don't have any problem with caffeine. I don't really even notice caffeine, I don't think, that much. Because hmm. you get it in, like, shop blocks and gels and goos and whatever, right. all the little energy products. Like, some of them have caffeine and some don't, and I, I don't feel like I notice an effect either way. Well, the reason I asked is that I find, personally, I remember I did a three-day meditation retreat, my first meditation retreat, and they disallowed caffeine. They said, no caffeine and no alarm clocks. You wake up when you wake up. And when I Welcome came... Welcome to my life. Yeah, I'm, on sounds a, amazing. I'm on a 20-year meditation retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I need to do more of that. And I came back from that experience and went back into my normal routine, which was drinking not coffee at that point, but a lot of iced tea. Like I'd go to a restaurant and they would just endlessly refill my iced tea. Mm -hmm. And I felt like a complete crackhead, like a miserable crackhead. And I was like, is this what my normal was? Holy shit. And the reason that I brought it up is that it strikes me that at least in that state, I would have a lot of trouble distinguishing the fine nuances of different types of fear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you're just overwhelmed when you're all jacked up on sugar from iced tea stuff and then you're yeah. Yeah, in like caffeine who knows yeah, yeah totally there's like a lot going on physiologically and it's hard to differentiate like what the what the finer points are yeah the signal from the noise mm-hmm. uh at what climbing grades have you plateaued the most this is from liz wolf um and she's she just said 511 plateau has been really bad for me which probably means she hasn't got past the 511 plateau. Yeah, probably. She's just like mired in 511 land. Um, no, so I've basically, I pretty much progressed steadily to about mid 514. So like 14 B or C. And I've basically been plateaued there for like seven or 10 years or something. Um, though I feel like I've sort of plateaued there because I'm at the point. Um, I mean, cause mid 514 is definitely a fairly high level of climbing though. It's by no means elite by the world standard anymore. Like that's not, that's not like super hard. Just to put it in perspective, what it, what would be elite? the hardest thing in the world is 15 C, but only two people have climbed that. But there are a lot of people climbing like 15 a and 15 B ish now. And so climbing like 14 B or C is like, you know, respectable, but a lot of people can do that. Like first try, no problem. Not a lot, but a handful of people can climb that first try. No problem. It's like trivial for them. So, you know, I mean, it's not, 
it's by no means world standard, but you know, it's, it's solid. Mm -hmm. But so I think that for me, that's sort of my natural plateau. Like that's kind of what I can climb, um, without having to train much to climb harder, you know, because the thing is I spent a lot of my year doing like adventure trips and expeditions and, you know, doing stuff through my foundation and going to Angola last year. I mean, trips like that, that do not help your fitness at all. Like they won't help you climb harder, but they definitely make you a more well-rounded climber and probably a better person and more interesting. You get to do fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've sort of been content being plateaued at, at mid-514 for a long time. Though I could see at some point in my life I might devote a year or two to, like, actually trying to climb hard. Because I'd love to climb the the French grade 9A, which is 14D in U.S. grades. Um, it's just sort of like a meaningful benchmark grade. That if I ever climbed 9A, I'd be like, respect. Like, I'm good. Like, that's that's hard enough for me. So if you wanted you know. to do that hard climbing, what would the most important components of that training look like? Um, I'm not totally sure. I mean, I think for me it would require more fingerboarding or hangboarding, like basically just focusing more on finger strength because I think as a climber, that's probably what I'm worst at is just like the pure strength holding on to things. Um, but also I think for me it would just require more dedicated, focused, hard climbing for the year. You know, like right now I'm climbing in Yosemite and, uh, in my whole season of climbing in Yosemite, I won't do a single hard move basically at the you know, at the physical limit of like what I can actually pull on because I'm climbing these like great big walls and I'm trying to climb them quickly. And sometimes I'm climbing them ropeless, but anyway, I'm doing them in all these styles that like just doesn't help you pull harder. And so like, if I wanted to climb harder grades, I would have to just pull harder. If you could no longer climb, but had to pick a physical activity, what would you pick? If I couldn't climb, I don't know. I have a lot of respect for ultra runners. I think um, because they sort of interact with the landscape in the same way that I kind of like to, you know, like the, something like the ultra tour Mont Blanc, when you like run all the way around the Mont Blanc massif, I mean, that's pretty cool. And like, I would love to be able to do things like that, but I just like, don't really, I can't run that well, <laughs> but, um, but the thing is, is that I really love running like mountain ridge lines and things. And then that quickly becomes actual rock climbing. And so I'm like, well, it's like, I don't know, but yeah, ultra running is pretty awesome or, um, I don't know. I could be into like big mountain skiing too. Like it's same, but see it all sort of gravitates back towards mountains and I'm like, well, that's basically climbing. And then you get exposed to nasty things like avalanches. For those of you who haven't seen Meru, Jesus, Jimmy, both of you guys make me sweat. Not that I need any help. I tend to run hot drinking tea anyway, but, uh, (laughs) I digress as usual. Uh, what are you world class at aside from climbing? or within climbing that people might not realize? Um, Or how would your best friends answer that question? I don't know. I mean, I guess one within climbing, I'd say that, um, isn't it? Cause I'm known as a free soloist. I'm known for the ropeless climbing and that's like what you'll see online and you know, all the videos and all that, but I'd probably still be a professional climber, even if I didn't free solo at all. Um, like right now I hold the speed record on like pretty much every major formation in Yosemite. Um, you know, all the different faces, like all the classic roots, like, um, I, I mean, I think that's basically true. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd probably still be like one of the more well-rounded climbers in America, even without the free soloing. But, um, but it's all sort of overshadowed by the like, Oh my God, he's ropeless. And it's funny because I only do, you know, a handful of solos a year if that, and then I spend the whole rest of the year climbing with partners and ropes and like normal climbing with my friends, just like doing all kinds of interesting things and expeditions and whatever. And yet it still just comes down to like, whoa, free soloing. But you know, I'm fine with that because at least I get to go climb all the time. What advice would you give to your 
25-year-old self, 25 or 20, depending on who needed it the most, and if you could just place like what you were doing and where you were at the time. Well, 20 is still slightly too old, but like my 18-year-old self, I would sure. just tell, to, I would say, just not bother going to college at all. Because like the year that I spent at Berkeley was a total waste of my time, basically. Not not because there's anything wrong with Berkeley, but because I just wasn't passionate about what I was studying, and there's no there, be, there was no point in me like grinding out a year of studies that I didn't care about. That you know, I should have just like gone climbing, because I mean that's what I really cared about, and that's what's been so funny over the years is that like with climbing, you know, I have no problem putting in you know twenty to forty hours a week every week all year into climbing. Like, and I mean, that's a fair amount. I, I've been keeping a training journal. Um, so I have like sort of hours of exercise and last year, um, I counted up at the end of the, at the new year and, uh, I basically averaged like 27 hours a week of exercise every week last year, which is, you know, like, I think that's kind of comparable to other, I mean, you would know more than me, but other sports like for training volume. Mm -hmm. But I mean, then when you think that I've probably been doing that for the last 10 years that I've been on the road and actually, and last year was a particularly low volume year for me because I, I had a book come out and so I did a month of book touring and I also did like a month of touring in South America. And so like I was climbing much less than I normally would. So presumably a few years ago living in the van, I was probably doing like 30, probably 30 or 32 hours a week of exercise, which is like a lot of time spent climbing. It is a lot of time. But what else know. do you put in your training journal? What other details are in there? Um, it's one line. I do one line hours of exercise, one line, um, any additional like strength training type stuff or like the stretching I've been doing recently. And then one line diet, which is like ate well, ate poorly, ate so, so, or like, you know, too many cookies, like whatever, things like that. Do you go back? Do you eat a lot of cookies? Uh, sometimes I have an unfortunate, what's, problem. what's, what's, what's your go-to cookie? Should I just chocolate chip cookies like straight? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can eat a lot of cookies. Yeah, well, that's probably the only thing that athletically, well, not athletically, that we share in common. <laughs> oh, yeah? Do you, do you go big on the cookies? I do. Yeah, there are I these... I see you looking towards your kids. Oh, uh, well, I was looking. I have this, like, secret yeah. stash. I have to keep it out of sight. Yeah. Uh, there are these chocolate chip cookies uh, that are actually from Long Island. Tate's, I think they are. There's well, <laughs> somebody like nodding over there. imported chocolate chip cookies. Well, originally from Long Island, and they have... There's their chocolate chip cookies, and then there are these... I think they're gluten-free ginger cookies and i can't have those in my house or I demolish the <laughs> that's my thing with desserts thing. too is that i don't really buy dessert much because if i buy it i just eat it all immediately like i'm terrible with moderation so i generally don't have any dessert in the van and then when i do i just eat it all <laughs> but, <laughs> uh if you were to i know this is this is a bit of a reach but you're 30 now let's say your idealized 40 year old self right uh what advice do you think that 40-year-old would give you now? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm doing pretty well right now. Oh, I'm not saying you're not. I'm um, just... Yeah, no, I don't I don't know. I mean, just, you know, just enjoy the ride. Yeah. Just enjoy the process. Uh, what would you like your life to look like in 10 years? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe have a family or something or, or at least like a solid partner, solid something going on. Um. I think I'd like to maybe own a home or like have have a place that I'm kind of living like more of a solid home base uh, just because like living in a van is great but you know at a certain point you're like man it's nice to have like a bathroom but I'm <laughs> um, having like a shower and things so how do you, know? you deal with that actually now that I, now that I, because well, that's why when I came not... into your house I used your bathroom oh that's got like, it 
Yeah. But like, so like last night, you're like, oh man, I had too much water. Well, I have, no, I have a pee bottle. I mean, you know, I've used a bottle forever. And yeah. actually the thing is when you get used to using a pee bottle all the time, like when I pull into a grocery store or something, I always just like pee in my bottle before I go into, you know, cause you're like, why would I ever go and find some like dank public bathroom when like I can just use my bottle? So cool. do you have, do you have, a, is it a disposable pee bottle? Like it's no, like no, whatever, it's like I use like a, a Nalgene. No, I use like a two liter bottle, just like some random plastic bottle. Got and it. I basically use it over and over until it's like, this is repulsive. And then I recycle <laughs> it and then I move on to another, but it's actually kind of a, this natural, it's like an, a, a natural life cycle because I'll use the same water bottle for climbing. It'll just be like some random two liter bottle that's in my bag for like months. But then eventually it starts to get disgusting or just kind of, you know, a little gross. And so then I'm like, well, that becomes the pee bottle. And then I get another bottle. <laughs> It's like the the four month cycle on my bottles, you know. Do you do you label them or do you no, just know by smell? Bottle, yeah, with a pee bottle, you just know. Like, <laughs> you know, when you open the bottle, you're like, oh, I shouldn't drink this. <laughs> but also, I have systems with like where things go, and you know, I'm never gonna accidentally like drink my pee bottle. <laughs> uh, do you have? Do people visit you in your van? Like, hang out in your van aside from the dates? Um, yeah, no. I, I mean, friends hang out in my van for sure. I mean, a lot of my climbing friends would be staying in a tent normally or staying wherever. So, I mean, for them, it's a big step up to hang out in the van. It's like climate controlled, you know, you can, it's like sheltered. You can cook on a nice stove. It's lit. I mean, it's a nice place to hang out in the evenings. Uh, if you could have one billboard with anything on it, what would it say? Or what would you put on it? So you can give a message to the world. Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, just like, I don't know, environmental propaganda or something. Or like uh, the meat stuff. I'm like pretty stoked on all the vegetarian type of stuff now just because it's such an easy way to minimize your impact on the planet. And it's just, you know, I mean, it just solves so many different environmental issues. But um, I don't know. But the thing is, a billboard is not the best way to just say, don't eat meat, because it's like it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. And nobody's going to read that and be like, oh, okay, I'll stop. Right. You know, it's like requires yeah. requires more of a conversation yeah i mean it requires like a whole and and even then it's like it's not to say that like meat is fundamentally bad it's like how you get it where it's from what you're supporting i mean you know it's like a whole feedlot versus this versus yeah that. yeah i mean even that's like really complicated yeah because there are places in the world where it makes sense to to raise animals because like you can't raise anything else you can't grow crops you you know yeah whatever and so uh what have you changed your mind about in the last few years if anything um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like in high school, I was reading a bunch of Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand, whatever, yeah. you know, like objectivist, all super black and white, basically like F the poor people should work harder. They should try harder. And now as a 30 year old, I'm basically like all about trying to help the poor, trying to help the planet in different ways, trying to make the world a better place. It's like full 180 from, you know, the black and white that I was into in high school. And then, yeah, I mean, I've had massive changes on all those kinds of things. I mean, I used to be way more harsh, you know, and like my political views are like way further left now. I'm just way more, I mean, I'm a lot more compassionate now. I feel like that's funny. Not so much on a personal level because I don't really care, but on like a societal level, I'm a lot more compassionate. <laughs> that's what it's like. <laughs> All right. I can't let that one go right away. So, uh, well, cause I was like, I can't self-describe as compassionate because none of my friends would agree, you know, cause the yeah. thing is I'm not like nice to like my friends or on like a one-on-one level. I'm not like a super kind person. I don't think, but, um, but definitely in the grander sense, I mean, I'm trying to make, I'm, 
I aspire to make the world a better place and like a more more just world, you know, on the macro level. Yeah, exactly. So at a high it, level. So if, so if I took say a couple of your closest friends and gave them a bottle or two of wine, we're just hanging out. How would they describe you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, if I you had to guess, to I mean, I shudder to think. Well, I mean, the thing I'm pretty frank, I think, and so people can, you know, I think I can kind of be a dick sometimes, and. <laughs> Um, though I just consider that being very honest, you know, <laughs> keeping it real. But yeah. I'm just keeping it real, keeping it real. No, I mean, I'd like to think that m- my friends would still call me a good person, you know, that I'm still like, still trying to, I'm doing my best, you know? Uh, but. do you have any, we're going to wrap up here, any ask or request for my audience? That could be something you want them to think about, something you would like them to try, something you'd like them to do. I feel like they're all MMA fighters. I'd ask, no. them, I'd ask them not to beat me up ever. Please. <laughs> no, they're not like, all MMA fighters. I assure I you. I don't know. Do something positive in the world. You know? <laughs> yeah. Not a bad place to wrap up. Where can people find more of you online? Best place to say hello, see what you're up to. Um, I mean, my most personal outlet is probably my Facebook fan page. I'm like constantly posting stuff that I care about and it's all managed by me. And so it's just like me posting articles that I think are interesting. It's kind of like a combination of, of, uh, the climbing stuff that I'm into and then like the environmental stuff that I'm into. Basically I post the environmental stuff is all the stuff I care about. And then I post just enough climbing so that everyone doesn't leave. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, is that, what, what is the uh, URL for that? And I'll put this in the Facebook.com slash Alex Honnold, I think. Okay. But if you just search, search for it, it's, you know, like a fan page, it's like several hundred thousand people or whatever. H O N N O L D. Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, I really appreciate you taking the time. I've been hoping to meet you for a long time, given that we're not that far apart. Uh, yeah. oftentimes with uh Yosemite. So Yeah, it's surprising. This is uh this has been fun and once I once I fix my elbows maybe I'll see if I can tackle yeah, you should, a you V zero <laughs> or <Yeah>. two. <laughs> yeah. And maybe actually get outdoors, which I would enjoy. Right. So uh yeah, I will uh hopefully do more than a three day meditation retreat. <laughs> Given that you've been doing it for twenty years, I think <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. might extend my ambition a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but nice. uh thanks very much. I really yeah, appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Pleasure. And everybody listening for show notes, links to everything that we talked about, please just go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, as always, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy it.